Well, good morning and welcome. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad to have each and every one of you, whether you're joining us here in the room, we see out there in the lobby, those of you online, we're so glad to have you as we continue to walk through our sermon series through 2 Timothy. Our sermon series entitled, Poured Out. Because as we said, this is the last letter of the greatest church planner in history, the Apostle Paul. This is his final letter to his favorite person, Timothy. And in it, he is telling Timothy to guard the gospel so he can give it to the next generation. He's saying to protect the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ so he can pour it out with his life. As we get into chapter 3, which will be today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you can open up and we'll be there in just a moment. As we get to chapter 3, it seems that Paul is aware that, these, that in his day and his time, they're increasing difficulty. He'll say these are times of difficulty. Even, he even used a controversial phrase to say, in the last days. Seems rising intensity, rising fervor. Many of us may feel in the same place. We may be uniquely aware to the growing threats against our faith. If you're here at home or nationally or abroad, we may be worried, you know, when and if the last days are to come. What I love is that Paul is very clear to us. He cuts through the worry and the fear and the anxiety and speaks directly to us through the inspiration of the Spirit. What do we do in the last days? What do we do in times of difficulty? What do we do? He tells us we focus on faithfulness. That's the big point. One big point, the main idea of today's text and of the sermon is what do we do in the last days? We focus on faithfulness. My wife and I, we like to get in kind of cycles of TV shows. I don't know if you guys do the same. We'll watch one for a while and we'll jump on to the next one. And one of those cycles, we got into doomsday preppers. <laughs> People who have sold their whole life to preparing for the end times, the end of the world, right? Let me get my notes so I get these right. These are fantastic. One guy was convinced that the end would come through a global market crash and they would lead to rioting and looting in, in the streets of every urban center across the globe at once. And so he spent over $100,000 upfitting an armored vehicle so that he and his family could bug out, you know, before the, before the crowds got there. Another one was convinced, sure, it would come by an environmental cataclysm, that something would happen, I don't know what, that would wipe out all sources of sustainable food. And so she and her husband would keep on hand at any given moment 900 gallons of milk and 3,000 pounds of canned foods stuffed in every nook and corner of their house. They estimated it to be worth over $150,000 of food they keep on hand at any given time. Another person was sure it was a viral warfare would come with a dirty bomb or whatever else it would be. And he spent, get ready, $7 million to make an airtight bunker somewhere in the desert, self-circulating air so that he and his family could live for years and years after a dirty bomb. Years ago, that seemed outlandish and really it kind of still does. But then a global pandemic actually happened. And we start having renewed interest in the end of the world or the end time or the last days. And in the church, there seems to be two extremes. On one hand, there are people who are significantly concerned 
about the last days. I remember when the, um, the shutdown happened, we were all, you know, stay-at-home orders or whatever it was. One of my friends, and I would not have thought it to be this friend out of all of them, one of them started stocking up on ammo, like buying like bunches and bunches of ammunition. I'm like, do you even own a firearm? <laughs> Another one of them started legitimately researching to purchase land out in the desert in the middle of nowhere, quote, off the grid, right? So we can get away from government interference. I'm like, have you talked to your wife about these plans? <laughs> we may not be there researching whatever else, but, but maybe if we're honest, looking back, this past season has, has brought about life-changing, even relationship-altering fear, anxiety, worry, we feel it rising anytime we're scrolling on social media or turning on the news, whatever it is. So we're here either, some of us are significantly concerned, and then some of us have responded too far the other way. There's so much noise in that direction that we're just going to try to tune it out, not even think about it. And those of us here, we may not have our ears open or our eyes open to see and to, to be on alert for what Scripture tells us to do. It's interesting, as we get into 2 Timothy 3, it's not controversial for Paul to say these are the last days. What is controversial, if you will, what is interesting, what is challenging, is what he tells us to do with it. What then does it mean? What then does it mean we should do? Should we freak out? Should we tune it out? No, Paul tells us to focus on faithfulness. To focus on faithfulness. I'm going to read through the passage today from verse 1 on down to verse 13 there in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then we'll walk through it closer together. So if you could type to or turn to, and we'll be walking through this text together. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." Paul starts out with a bang, doesn't he? Talks about a hot topic when he says, understand this, that in the last days, there'll come times of difficulty. There's been a lot of ink spilt and thoughts thrown about on the when and if concerning the last days or the end times. In the 70s and 80s, we had a lot of fun trying to figure it out, right? Is the mole on Gorbachev's forehead, is that the mark of the beast? We have our newspapers open, we're like, oh, the attack helicopters, the US military looks kind of like the locusts in Revelation or whatever else. Then the 90s, we had the Left Behind series. I'm not talking about the Nicolas Cage reboot that got 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. Ouch. 
Then 2000s, what? We had Y2K. We laugh about Y2K now. It's hilarious. But I bet you at least bought more bottled water than normal, didn't you? (laughs) And then now and today, there's a, a renewed interest on if and when we got COVID and the vaccine and the markets and politics and and if and when a lot of fervor, a lot of energy, a lot of thoughts and opinions and whatever else. Paul just hits right through and clears it up. Hey, guess what? These are the last days. That's not controversial for him at all. These are the last days. To help us think through it, I'll kind of frame it around the end times, last days. Let's frame it around two things, the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. What did Jesus say when he begins his earthly ministry? What's the first words, if you will, that he he preached? Right? Mark 1 and Matthew 4 records very much the same. Whenever Jesus, after being baptized, tempted in the wilderness, comes and he begins preaching the gospel, what does he say? Repent for the kingdom of God or of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. That phrase is loaded with all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises of how God would make all things new through the king. That's exactly it. So Paul knows, and the New Testament authors write again and again, these are the last days. Why? Because the king has truly come with his kingdom. The kingdom is truly here. That the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning, he is ruling in his church through his word, and he is present by his spirit. But the kingdom's not yet here fully, is it? Jesus himself teaches us to pray how? Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So when will, if you, if you will, the end of the end come? When will the last of the last days, the end times, it will come when the king returns. If you have to ask, is this the end of the end? Is this the last of the last? If you have to ask that question, then the answer is no. Why? Because scripture is clear. The end of all things will come when the skies are torn asunder, when the Lord descends in glory, calls his own to himself forever, and judges the living and the dead. But whenever Jesus and Paul both, whenever they talk about the end, right, they, they, they talk about things that make us really worried, makes us uncomfortable. And, and rightly so, they are fearful things. Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. You can jot those down and look at it later. Paul also hits that in Romans 8, 1 Thessalonians and other places. They talk about things like wars and rumors of wars. They talk about famines and earthquakes and persecution. These signs, right? When Jesus and Paul, when they're talking about these signs that the end is coming, they're not giving it to us so we can map everything out, so that we can understand the workings and the the times and the seasons. It's not for us to understand. They're telling us so we're not thrown off when things are going from bad to worse, that we're not upset or or, or just like thrown for a tizzy, right, when, when Christians begin to be persecuted. They're telling us things that we're not surprised by trouble, by times of difficulty, The prince of darkness is raging, and as Paul says, the creative order is groaning, as in labor pains. Think about labor pains. It only gets worse before it gets better. It tells us things for us not to be alarmed, but also for us to focus. Anytime you read about the end times in Scripture, almost every time, may I say every time, like a totalizing statement, test it, see if it's true. Every time, focus. That's the main point. Don't be 
Don't let people lead you astray. Don't, don't look over there. Don't look over there. Focus. And focus on faithfulness. The last days should not create fear in us, but focus for us to focus on faithfulness. The first side of focus is what you turn away from, though. It's what you avoid. I think we know this to be true. I don't mean to make light of the situation, but COVID has been very detrimental to myself and my um, wellness, especially through nutrition and exercise. It's been terrible. I was looking in the mirror the other day, and I'm like, man, I have picked up the COVID-19, and those pounds aren't going anywhere. <laughs> I was looking, I'm like, Stephen, you're going to get a hold of yourself. And so Operation Get a Hold of Yourself has begun. I was telling Pastor Kyle about it, and he's like, you know what? Why don't you try running? I'm like, that's a great idea. I love the thought of being a runner, don't you? <laughs> Waking up early before anyone is, watching the sun rise in the whatever east, wherever it rises. You know, rise, <laughs> running along with your hair, your hair blowing in the wind and just hitting your stride. But what's the problem with saying yes to being a runner? Everything you got to say no to. I got to say no to the snooze button. And I love the snooze button. That's my wife drives her crazy, like snooze, snooze, snooze. I got to say no to one more show on Netflix. It's like, the next show is coming now. And you're like, well, all right, one more. That's fine. <laughs> you got to say no to the one extra bowl of cinnamon toast crunch or one extra cookie or one extra whatever else while I'm watching the one extra show on Netflix. <laughs> if I'm going to say yes to that ideal, if I'm going to say yes to that goal, if I'm going to say yes to that vision, I've got to say no to any number of things. Well, Paul gives Timothy a beautiful picture, a beautiful call, a beautiful goal, a beautiful idea in chapter 2. We looked at it last week. He tells him he should aspire to be a gold vessel set apart for God for honorable use, ready for any and every good work, useful to the master. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Timothy should aspire to. That's what we should aspire to. But if that's the goal, if we're going to say yes to that, what do we have to say no to? What do we have to turn away from? What do we have to avoid? First thing Paul tells us, if we're going to say yes to that goal, yes to God, if you will, we have to say no, we have to avoid selfishness. We have to avoid selfishness. Look at verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. What's at the front of Paul's mind whenever he's thinking about times of difficulty? Verse 2, four people will be lovers of self. Selfishness is the root of all sin. Think back to the garden, the first sin, the original sin, Adam and Eve. I was listening to a political podcast and a commentator, he's pretty up on things. And he was like, yeah, that's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They wanted to reach out and take the forbidden knowledge. I'm like, well, that's better than them wanting to take the fruit. It's not, it wasn't about the fruit. What about forbidden knowledge? What was the temptation that Satan gave? And the day you eat of it, you will be like God. Adam and Eve wanted to elevate themselves to the level of God. They wanted to supplant God. They didn't want to love him and trust him and obey him and humble themselves before him as their God. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to be God in their own eyes. Selfishness is not only the root of all sin, but it's the root of our sin. John Calvin talks about this list. There's a litany Paul rolls through. But lovers of self leads it because you can kind of see it as the fountainhead from which all the others spring. 
I'm not necessarily going to go through them all or go through them in order, but I'm going to try to group them together, this big, long list. That selfishness affects, first and foremost, this is obvious, we know it, selfishness makes us love ourselves. If you are selfish, you love yourself. So that you are, as Paul says in verse 2, proud and arrogant. Or he says in verse 4, swollen with conceit. So you overestimate your strength, your ability, and you underestimate your weaknesses and your shortcomings. You focus on others' failures, so every problem is someone else's fault. And you are blind to your own sinfulness, so that you are then a mistaker, that sometimes messes up, and not a sinner. And your sin will just be something you do on the weekends to let off steam or whatever else. And just like with Adam and Eve in the garden, in your own mind, you will be like God. But if you love yourself, you will also use things to love yourself. You will use things to love yourself. Second thing Paul rolls through is lovers of self will also be lovers of money. In sin, we look to money and don't just think about bills on a desk. Like we look to our salary, we look to investments, we look to our wish list, we look to stuff, material, whatever. We look to those things to get from them what only God can give, power and authority. Safety and security, value and fulfillment. We think that if we get enough of that, we can be like God. And because we love ourselves, we love money. That's why generosity is both a gift of the Spirit and a spiritual discipline. It's a gift of the Spirit because only those who are indwelt with the living presence and Spirit of God can truly be cheerful givers. And it's a spiritual discipline. Because when we discipline ourselves to be generous with our time, talents, and treasures through our regular ties and gifts or however, if we discipline ourselves to be generous, the Spirit works in us to transform us more into the image of Christ who gave everything out of love. Not only will you use money, you will use any number of things for your own pleasure. The end of verse 4. The last thing that Paul lists, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In sin, we judge everything by and we use everything for our pleasure. We judge up or down, right or wrong, true or false, by whether it feels good, whether it seems good, whether our gut tells us it's good. And of course, then, will we be as he says in verse four, uh, three, without self-control. If we love pleasure, of course, we're gonna be without self-control. Because if you don't control yourself, your desires will control you. That you will get sexual fulfillment, whatever kind of it you want, wherever you want, however you want, and whenever you want it. You will eat and drink whatever and however much you want. Preach to myself, you'll sleep whenever and however long you want. Because we love ourselves, we will love pleasure. And those desires will lord over us. That's why fasting has traditionally been a spiritual discipline. Fasting is an opportunity for you to flex your no muscle. For you to grow in self-control. To be transformed with the image of Christ who does all things in accordance to the will of his Father. So you don't love pleasure more than God. But also we see if you are selfish... If you love yourself, you will not only use things, you'll also use people. You will use people to love yourself so that others become a means to an end 
You're a great boyfriend or girlfriend, sure, but as long as you get what you want. You're a great parent as long as your kids are fun and obedient. You're a great spouse as long as your partner smiles and doesn't speak up or speak out. And you're a great child as long as your parents never say no to you. But when something goes against you, you better watch out. Verse 2, you will be disobedient to parents. Kids in the house, and we're all kids at some level, right? God gave us parents as an example of submitting to authority. Let me just say clearly, if you are disobedient to your parents, you have no right to pretend you are obedient to God. You will also be slanderous, verse 3, and treacherous, verse 4. You will say and do whatever seems best in the moment. It doesn't matter if you have to go back on what you said earlier or stab someone in the back as long as you get what you want when you want it. You will be, verse 2, ungrateful. Verse 3, heartless and unappeasable. No matter what your kids or your spouse do for you, it will never be enough because your desires change as your moods change. And your love is un as unstable as your mood and finally, you'll be abusive, verse 2, and brutal, verse 3. You will use things and people and dump them. You'll hook up, shack up, and break up. You'll love them and leave them behind. I don't care what you've been told or what you feel. Free sex and divorce, they are abusive and brutal. And at the bottom of it all is selfishness. Selfishness. You know, it seems our world is uniquely troubled. There are many scholarly doctor type studies that are charting an alarming spike in mental health issues, in substance abuse, and suicidal ideation. For some of you, that's no news, you're living in it. I did a funeral for someone who committed suicide. I'm here during COVID. And the scariest, saddest, and most wicked Part of it all is that we hear and see everywhere the promise that we can get out of our problems the more we focus on ourselves. Think about the issues with gender and sexuality. The questions are being asked, are you struggling with your sexual identity or your desires? Or do you feel uncomfortable with the gender norm that's either told to you or felt by you that you should conform to? If either of those things are true, then there will be healing, there will be wholeness the more you focus on yourself. What do you want? What are your desires, your feelings, your thoughts? What are they telling you? Go deeper in yourself to find fulfillment and truth. And it is a sick and dangerous cycle. The medical community is clear that people who identify as gay and transgender have higher rates of mental health complications than the general population by far. And it is sick and sad and wicked when someone is struggling to point them back deeper into themselves. Because the more you focus on yourself, the deeper and the darker you will go. Think also about the wellness culture we live in. The cure for the modern life, the rat race, the social pressures, the whatever else, the cure is found in what? You being your best you. Wake up and go to fitness classes and they're like, hey, this morning it's all about you. It's about your work and your desires. It's about your goals and your drive. It's about finding your perk. Diet commercials, I was watching TV and one came on. And this lady, I don't know what she was selling, some sort of pill or something. She was like, it all begins 
Everything in life begins with self-care. Social media influencers are just beating the drum, right? The root of your problems, they are false modesty, undeserved humilities, and refusing to let your light shine bright. And may I speak to women directly. You are uniquely being attacked in this area. They are saying to you, women, are you unhappy? Are you dissatisfied? Are you anxious? Then self-care is the way out. As one famous talk show host put it, it's like the oxygen mask theory. That when there's a crisis, you better put your own oxygen mask on first before you deal with anyone else around you, your children or whatever else. It is wicked deceitfulness that says you can only fix your problems by focusing more on yourself. Because the way of Jesus Christ and the command of our Lord and the promise of life is only through self-denial. What does he say in Luke 9, 23? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Do you wanna be a disciple of Christ? Do you wanna be a gold vessel useful and set apart by God for all those glorious good works? If you want that goal and that ideal, then you better start saying no to yourself. Turn away from, avoid selfishness. It's interesting though, isn't it? That Paul isn't focused only on selfishness as an idea, kind of some free-floating concept, is he? Paul is actually talking to us about a certain type of person. He's talking about people. So he's not just giving us a list of behaviors to watch out for, he's describing a type of person to avoid. He says the, at verse five there, after the whole litany, he said, avoid such people. So if we're going to focus on faithfulness, we need to focus on who we follow. Scripture is clear that we are made to be impressionable. We are made to be susceptible to peer pressure. And God made it as a good thing. That's part of the discipleship process. Discipleship happens in relationship. As we're with one another, we are changed more and more to the image of Christ. It's a good thing. But sin can twist it, can pervert it so that our susceptibility can be turned toward selfishness, toward wicked, toward evil purposes. We know it explicitly, it's told to us. Social scientists say that you are the average of your five closest friends. Why don't you try it? Your health, your well-being, even your salary, it's weird. You're the average of your five closest friends, they say. Also, leading leadership gurus will tell us that your friends determine the quality and direction of your life. But we know in the playground, don't we? We're with our kids, watching them play, you're like, what's that kid's shirt say again? I don't know if I want him hanging around him. Those pants are a little baggy, aren't they, Mr. Seven-Year-Old? We know that bad company corrupts good morals, right? And the crazy thing Paul is telling Timothy is to avoid people. Not just people out there. Like, yeah, amen, the world's wicked. Not just out there. And not only just like that church over there. Like, yeah, I know that church. They are crazy. No, he's telling Timothy about people he will meet in his church. Watch out for those people you meet in your church, Timothy. Do not be deceived, he tells them. There will be people who appear godly, but are religiously lost. They will appear godly, but are religiously lost. Look at verse five. All the whole terrible list we went to, all 18 things, even despite all those things, they will have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They will still consider themselves Christian and still look impressively religious. Symbols without substance. Tradition without truth. 
pieces of true things without it being personal. There is no power. Why? Because there's no life change. That whole list still applies to them and they're fine with that arrangement. There will also be people who appear influential but are manipulative. People who appear influential but are manipulative. Verse six, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Paul is not saying that all women are weak. This is not a totalizing statement about the condition of femininity. He's saying that there are some women who are uniquely vulnerable. And these types of people prey on vulnerability. I seems to be true. Earlier in ministry, there was a, a, a true widow, right? In our church, men, she had no living relative to speak of. Mid-90s, still living at home, incredible in that regard. Went to go visit her, and her neighbor was in the, the um, living room at the time with her. And, she's like, and her neighbor said, I'm so glad you're here. When I got here, there was a salesman who had wormed his way in and had convinced Miss Jane that she needed to spend over $40,000 for new windows in her home. And she was pulling out her checkbook. That is wicked. And that stuff happens in the church. The prosperity gospel preys on older women. It takes money for people who cannot afford to give any money. Why? Because it, it locates their problems and manipulates those for their own end. It uses people. It uses people. You can see this also with divisiveness in the church. With gossip and divisiveness. What happens in divis a divisive person? What they do is they try to talk to you and try to leverage or try to point out some problem that's happening in the church. Do you see it too? Can you see that problem? Oh my gosh, I can't believe. And they're trying to manipulate and get a team of people around them so that with that influence, that team of people, they can have power. They seem influential. I don't care if they have a following. They may seem influential, but they are manipulative. And finally, there will be people who appear innovative, but who are empty. They appear innovative, but are empty. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Appear innovative, but empty. This happens all the time in churches. And it's many of our stories sitting in this room. That a new church leader has come in with some sort of cutting edge social agenda or something. And they offer the newest, most innovative, some divinity school somewhere can offer. But after a while, it's, it appears to be a little substance-less. Always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth found only in the Word of God. The sermons are just a tired old routine without arriving at the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we say we are a new church that believes old things. We guard what we have been given so we can give it to the next generation. We don't improve upon. We guard the deposit. We don't springboard off of the gospel into our own thoughts and opinions and social agendas. The gospel is the pool, not the diving board. And we spend our lives swimming in those vast waters. We should not be surprised. It has always been like this. See at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Janus and Jambres. I don't have any idea who those guys are. Anybody here? Anybody know off the top of your head? Maybe your Bible can help you. Help me, right? Janus and Jambres, uh, tradition tells us, were the high priests in uh, Pharaoh's court. Remember the Exodus? Remember Pharaoh went to, excuse me, Moses went to Pharaoh, let my people go. And the Lord gave him miracles by his staff. 
And there was up to a point where high priest and Pharaoh's court could mimic, could copy somehow, some way, I don't know, could mimic the miracles and the power of God. They could appear godly. They could appear influential, promising, even powerful. But verse 9, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. There comes a time when they're done. There comes a time when these manipulative, empty, wicked, selfish, religiously lost people, when the spotlight will be turned on, they'll be cornered. Maybe you've been there. Someone you thought you knew, whenever they are caught, the fangs are bared. Like, I don't even recognize that person. Because there will come a time when wickedness is found out. But Paul is telling Timothy, the goal is to discover these people before their cover is blown. To know who they are so that he can avoid them. Verse 5 again, avoid such people. It sounds pretty petty, doesn't it? It's like, like Dwight off the office, you know, like shun, unshun, shun. Avoid. I don't like you. Avoid. What Paul is, is, is doing is giving us a delicate balance. We talked about last week. We always correct with gentleness. Remember how Pastor Kyle preached that this Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. We always correct with kindness and with gentleness. But there comes a time when we, we draw a clear line of demarcation, a clear line of separation. That's what's historically been called church discipline. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Church discipline. It's like, what, what, what's going to happen? The pastor's going to like take away my car for a month? But church discipline, what, what Paul is saying is pretty much along the same lines what Jesus said in Matthew 18. You can write it down, check it out later. When Jesus gives us a clear process in Matthew 18 that if someone sins against you, if a brother sins against you or a sister, you go tell them the fault between just, just you two. But if, if they do not repent, then what do you do? You bring two or three with you. And here in verse 17 in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if they refuse to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, here it is. Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do you see it? If they continue in obstinate, unrepentant, rebellion, if they continue to refuse to submit to the authority of the word of God in their life and conduct, there comes a time you got to draw a clear line. And to avoid means to say, in essence, based on your unrepentant, ongoing, consistent sin, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. That according to the gospel we have been given, you are on the outside of the family of God. We're not talking about somebody who's not a Christian. Paul makes that very clear. We're not even talking about someone who's immature, someone who just messed up once or twice. This is stubborn, obstinate, deceitful wickedness. There comes a time when we draw a clear line. If we're gonna focus on faithfulness, we have to start with what we say no to, with what we turn from, with what we avoid. It begins with each one of us as we deny ourselves and avoid selfishness, and it ends with all of us as we draw the line and avoid selfish people. That's the negative side of focus, what we say no to. There's also a positive side, isn't there? Positive side, what are we supposed to do then? Paul, what's the positive? Or more importantly, who are we supposed to follow? Paul tells us we follow faithful people. <laughs> we follow faithful people. 
Look at verse 1. Excuse me, verse 10. He sets Timothy apart from these wicked people and says, You, however, you're different. You're set apart. Why? Because you have followed, followed faithful people. Where does he start with in faithfulness? You have followed my teaching. Faithful people will focus on the word of God. They will focus on the spirit-inspired teaching of the prophets and the apostles. Next week, Pastor Kyle is going to preach extensively about scripture. But let's hold on to today. That we, not only do we need to focus on God's word and read it and pray it and memorize it and think it and speak it and live by it. But we need to surround ourselves with people, with others who focus on the word of God. And people, when we come to them and bring them our stuff, our problems, they give us the word back in return. We don't need to surround ourselves with people that are just like, no, nah, girl, you're fine. They're like, dude, I don't know, just do you, I don't know. When you bring your problems to someone who is faithful, they will give to you the word of God. They will apply it to your life as best they can. They will pray it over you. They will help you turn from yourself back to the living word. Also, we need to focus on those who follow the way of Christ. Who follow the way of Christ. Paul continues there in verse 10. Not only has Timothy followed his teaching, but he's followed his conduct, his aim in life, his faith. He's followed his conduct, what he does. Is who you are following, are they someone who lives more like Jesus Christ than, than you do? Someone who treats their spouse more like Christ would than you do. Someone who parents their children more according to the word of God than you. Someone who, who deals with others in public and deals with integrity in private more than you do. Follow someone whose conduct is faithful. What about aim in life? What somebody goes after? Not only the goal, but also the, the direction. Who you are following? Are they someone who is focused on just building up themselves with their, their career and their hobbies and their children, their relationships and whatever else? Or are they directing their time, talents, and treasure toward Christ? Finally, faith, what they believe in. Do they believe in self-help, self-actualization, self-care? Or do they believe in following a crucified Lord in a life of self-denial? We follow those who follow the way of Christ. And finally, we follow those who focus on endurance. He ends that list in verse 10 with how Timothy has followed his patience, his love, his steadfastness. We were all patient if the time, timeline's short enough. We are all loving when we get what we want in return. We are all steadfast for short stretches of time, but endurance requires faithfulness over the years. And endurance is often forged in the fire of suffering. Look at verse 11. Timothy has followed Paul's persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. There is something about endurance through suffering that brings a unique and intimate knowledge of God's faithfulness. That if you have been brought through the fire, often you got your, your scars you know, with you in the present, you know what you have endured yet, what from all the Lord has rescued you. My father-in-law used to say, uh, never trust a man without a limp. 
Because if you've been through the fire and you limp to tell the tale, you have a unique and intimate knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness. Are you following someone whose patience has been won through long suffering? Are you following someone whose love has borne, believed, hoped, and endured all things? Are you following someone whose steadfastness has held even through the fire? The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we need to follow those who focus on faithfulness. So let me ask you, who are you following? Who are you following? Often the people who are most influential to us we find in books or podcasts or social media, someone we don't really know. May we follow those who are close to Christ about all these things we're talking about, but also follow someone who's close to you. That's why we challenge every person to be a part of a community group. Why? So you can be influenced by those who are close to Christ, who are close to you. So you can be under the leadership of a community group leader who has been vetted to be faithful by this church as best as we can. May we follow those who are close to Christ and close to you because discipleship happens in relationship. You become who you follow. Become someone who is focused on faithfulness. You know, these are crazy times, aren't there? Times of difficulty. Yeah, you're, you're saying it right, Paul, right? Even the last days. What's it say in verse 13? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's like, yeah, I get that. I'm living that. That is promised to each one of us. But look at the second part of that verse in verse 13. If you focus on yourself or follow selfish people, you will be like the evil people and imposters who go from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. Bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. The scariest part is you can be deceived. You can think that you're on the right path, you're on the up and up. I mean, you're avoiding persecution. That's a good thing. You can think and deceive yourself unto your own destruction. I've never um, been inside a cockpit of a plane, much less have I ever been given the controls actually to fly something. But they say one of the craziest things can happen when pilots are flying through a storm that when they lose sight, visual sight with the horizon, there can be what happens is called spatial disorientation. It means that psychosomatically, I mean, everything about the pilot has no idea what is up or down, what is right or left, what is even fast or slow. And even scarier, pilots can have the illusion that their plane is ascending. In that time of spatial disorientation, in that illusion of ascent, if the pilot follows his feelings, his or her feelings, if they look inside themselves to find out what's true and real, the dangerous thing can happen is they will turn the plane downward and will fly farther, faster to their own destruction and the destruction of everyone around them. We are flying in a storm. You have to understand that you cannot trust yourself. If you look deep inside you, you will fly farther and faster to your own destruction. That's why pilots are taught to trust their instruments. We need something outside of us, an objective source of truth. We need something outside of us, 
like the living and active word of God, like the faithful lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us fly through the storm and not destroy our lives and those around us. Let me pray for us today. Our Father, we acknowledge that times are difficult. We even acknowledge that these are the last days. And Father, so often that brings fear and worry in us. And our knee-jerk, our gut reaction is to focus more on ourselves. What do we feel? What do we think? Our knee-jerk reaction is to focus on caring for ourselves to find our way out. But Father, in the middle of the storm, when our eyes cannot see the horizon, help us to open our ears and our hearts to hear the truth in your word and help us to counterintuitively deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you and follow those who live lives of faithfulness.